Saturday, May 20th, I will be in downtown San Francisco at the Mezzanine for the Life is a Wave party brought to you by Save the Waves. They are a good environmental group doing important work for our oceans. And if any of you are in the area, I would love to meet you in person. So head over to my website, kyle.surf, not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf, and get your ticket. I will be posting a link above Kai's episode. Or just head over to savethewaves.org. Either way, I hope to see you on Saturday. If this, blah, 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 blah. if this is your first time listening to this podcast, my name is Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. From professional big wave surfers to filmmakers to environmental thought leaders and everyone else in between. And this episode is with Kai Lenny. Kai, at the age of 24, is already seven-time stand-up paddleboarding world champion. Three racing, four surfing with a paddle. He is also an elite-level windsurfer, kite surfer, and big wave surfer. I met up with him in Newport at the XXL Big Wave Awards, where Kai was nominated for two awards. You get the picture. He is very good at winning, and he will most likely change our sport forever. What I didn't know about Kai, though, is that he's a super thoughtful dude. Very good head on his shoulders, highly articulate, and this was one of my favorite episodes ever. So I hope that you enjoy it. If you like this podcast, or even love this podcast, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and donate a few bucks through Patreon. I have worked it out where anyone who donates gets entered into a monthly raffle where I give away gear from my surf sponsors, such as Patagonia Provisions, RPM Fitness, and Sector 9 Skateboards. I recently I opened up my uh, Instagram today and saw Dan Mabry posted a photo of himself with a big box of Patagonia Provisions goodies, and he had a big smile on his face, and it put a smile on my face. So head over to kyle.surf and donate a few bucks. I so appreciate all the support, and it has been a great joy to see this podcast growing so quickly. Coming up in the weeks ahead, we've got an episode with Cyrus Sutton. We've got one with Paige Alms and a few special guests. Got some heaters coming out. Heaters. All right. Without further preamble, please welcome Kyle Lenny. Kyle here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part on Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. What's your relationship with Taco Bell? Um, my relationship with Taco Bell is I think my first bean burrito was from Taco Bell when I was a little kid. And it's just, uh, you know, <laughs> it's the, I think the point is, is it's the best uh, kind of on the water food because you have a burrito, all the goodies are inside and, you know, I don't have to stop doing a sport in order to eat it. You know, I can go like... I've ridden a wave at Jaws with a burrito in my hand while eating it. I've uh, hydrofoiled across channels with a burrito in my hand. I've pretty much done a lot of things that food doesn't normally go. So I hear that you'll get 30 
burritos the day before a big day and then you'll stash them all and you'll just eat taco bell all day throughout your sessions yeah you know it's like i've tried every type of diet there is really like in terms of like what where can i get my physical performance out of and at my age it just seems like you know eating what tastes really good and what gives me energy it's like if you feel good from what you're eating then you should continue doing that versus like well i don't feel good but supposedly it's healthy for you you know totally and 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 sometimes like food will give you a weird stomach ache inside and that can totally ruin a session well and sometimes bean burritos like if you're surfing in cold weather or if you're surfing in a scary situation it's bland enough bean and cheese that um you know, it's not going to give you a stomach ache, but then it's also going to allow like you to sus- like sustained energy for a long period of time. You know, it's not right. just going to be a burst of energy and then burned out. My metabolism is pretty quick. So, yeah. um, you know, and the whole, the reason why I ended up getting like three grande meals, which is the equivalent to like 30 burritos is because at first I would be surfing out of Jaws or Mavericks or somewhere and I'd have all these burritos uh, or not even that many. I mean, maybe 10, right? And they'd all get eaten by the filmers, the other athletes on the boat and stuff. And I would never get a burrito. So I'm like, you know, instead of telling somebody not to eat my burritos, I just got 30 bean burritos. So mm-hmm. they could eat it too. And, you know, I've had, it's so funny. I've had almost every big wave surfer at Jaws come up to the boat if they're hungry. You know, they jump off the rocks and they're like, Hey, do you got a bean burrito and some water? And it's like, yeah, of course. And so bean and cheese burritos. Typically, yeah, yeah, typically. I mean, if I'm celebrating something, I might get a seven layer burrito, which is like, you know, all the goodies inside. But uh, most of the time, like bean and cheese are kind of my go to on the water. Yeah. And then I get a little crazy once I'm back on land. <laughs> sounds wild. Yeah. Um, I used to lick all of my food so my friends wouldn't steal it. You ever oh, do that as a kid? No. You like lick the candy bar so that no one else would, would want it? No. No, I just figure, you know, like either stash it really good so no one finds it or just, you know, get some from them so they don't take it from you. Smuggling bean burritos. Smuggling bean burritos. Exactly. This last session at Mavericks, I brought anchovies out. Okay. People were super grossed out by it. Were you eating them? I was like... I eat my anchovies for howling uh, out. <laughs> I'm not a I fan of anchovies, but surprisingly, they taste pretty good if you have it like with a Caesar salad or something. Apparently, calorie for calorie, they're very good for you. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that's going to be a round two option for me. It's kind of a one-time yeah, thing. I try the Taco Bean burritos. I mean, it's so easy too. They last all day, and uh, you it's know, kind of comforting too. Like that oh, little. I mean, I figure why not? I'm gonna eat what I want if I'm in a big wave scenario where, yeah, you know, maybe it's it could be the end or something, or you could get really hurt. So it's like you might as well be eating what you want when you're surfing what you want because a lot of times the training and everything leading up to a big swell, nothing really matters on the day so much as you know when you're uh you know like how you prepare for it the totally. weeks prior so on the day of any race like i actually i've won the molokai to wahoo i've won the these all these major stand-up paddle races um and you know other Go sporting close, events close the um you there you go thanks yeah all these other sporting events but on taco bell on taco know, bell literally like Molokai to Oahu, I was I would always bonk three quarters of the way. Like I could have wanted maybe a couple more years, and um, I was this was like on a different diet. And then finally one year, I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna send it and just get Taco Bell. That sounds way better. And I had energy all the way through, and I wasn't even tired by the end. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna run with this. And then 
Um, do you have burritos? On, so on those big races, I'm not familiar with this world very much, so I'd love you to explain it to me. Do you have food out there with you as you're paddling across the islands? Well, between the islands, you need to have an escort boat for safety reasons, obviously. You know, if something happens, it's a big ocean out there. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, close to the body of water that Eddie Aikau got lost in. Yeah. So even the greatest, one of the greatest watermen ever, you can easily get lost out there, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we have... Uh, the escort boats and it usually has food and water for us usually have a camel back on and um the boat will stop ahead and you'll just zoom right on past and grab something um usually you might actually have somebody in the water so i'll have someone in the water holding a burrito or or you know like a red bull or water just depending on where i'm at in the race nice plug there i like that well it's true like the last the last home stretch last couple miles of red bull just because you're like you lose about 10 pounds of like weight that's yeah. mostly water, but still, you know, like y- you can drink all the water you can, but you're and eat all you want, but you're still losing it. And yeah. if you can have a good kick in the end, some people drink like flat Coca-Cola or Pepsi and you know, yeah, a lot of, uh, marathon runners will do coffee. Yeah. So which mean, makes sense. Just a little bit of caffeine to psych you up before that. I've even heard of like marathon runners, um, ordering a pizza and getting it delivered to the mid run. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so they'll be eating because at that point, endurance type racing, it's all about calories and you know, calories are you're burning, you know, it's energy. So it's like, you could almost get away with anything you want. You just don't want something that's going to be like giving you stomach problems. Yeah. And that's what I find with a lot of gels and stuff that like are it's like it's like overly thought out <laughs> yeah so it's like the, the citrusy yeah like, no it, it i feel like just throwing up yeah it's kind of queasy it's like the feel it's like the taste um right before you vomit in your mouth oh i a don't lot, know yeah i try not ones. to think about that so. so do you have um when you go on these big races do you have strategies in place oh beforehand? yeah like t- tell me about that kind of thought process because to the outsider it seems like you're going from point a to point b but I, like how does that whole thing work it really depends on the race like if i'm in southern california we do more of a race course like in Doheny, which is like buoys between waves and there's always a strategy there you know like um what side of the pack do you want to start on you know like at the start line um when you're gonna attack you know it's just like it's pretty technical but like in this case for molokai to oahu sure it's point a to point b but then you have this ocean with massive currents out there and you know depending on the wind depending on the time of year and the tide um, you could lose a race or you could win a race depending on just the, the angle you go on. And it's also about like conserving energy and attacking at the right times. Like maybe people are going slow in the beginning. So you attack, but then you got to sustain that the whole way. And, you know, it's really every year it changes that like, you can't actually, um, I would say carbon copy every year. Um, you kind of got to just look at the forecast, look what the ocean's doing. The currents change every year around the same date. So, um, you know, that's so, just it. It's so, pretty technical. Right. So what's an example of shifting your strategy from one year to the next? You, you said. I guess the example would be like maybe one year you take a more southerly route. So instead of heading straight across, you might actually go, uh, you might actually go more um, southerly on the route because the currents are better and it'll actually pull you towards the island. Um, or the next year could be a more northerly route. Let's say the wind changes, you know, you want to go it's more headwind. So you actually battle the headwind first so you can fall with it into it, or you just go sideways. It's everyone runs a different course and not, it's never the same twice out there, especially cause you know, it's, um, you know, just every, every day out in the channel changes. Yeah. Uh, who's your team that you consult with? Um, I mean, 
really a lot of the stuff I'm doing now, it's like I've done it so many times. I, you it's just really like, it's, it's sort of get like, a little closer to the mic. It's like my friend, it's like my family and, uh, you know, my coaches who helped me get there. But once the race starts, I know what I need to do. And I, I always consult with my, you know, boat captain cause he knows what the, uh, the, what, what the ties are doing in the course and helps me plot a course. Usually my boat captains are really knowledgeable and they've done many races. So they know. And then in the past, you know, getting coaching from like Dave Kalama, who's won that race a couple times. And, um, you know, a lot of times once you, once you're like in that top echelon, no one wants to give you any tips cause you're going battling with them you know those are the best guys are still doing it um and yeah that's uh it's it's just a really exciting race it's it's, what do you what do you think you do differently than other people um actually last year i trained less and i ate the what i wanted and i didn't actually i just you know what honestly i i won the thing on a 17 foot four inch race board stand up board giant board that's what you need called an unlimited and I won on that, but I barely paddled it. I mostly paddled my hydrofoil stand-up. That's the last summer. I was so obsessed with it. And it just proved to be a better trainer than actually doing the paddling. And I trained a little bit less. I surfed more. I did all my other sports more. I didn't put as much focus in it. Necess- not necessarily focus, but I didn't, like, overthink it. Right. And when the race came, I just knew what I had to do. And I went out and did it. And it was honestly the easiest I've ever felt that I've ever done the race. Like it was the most manageable. Maybe it was just years of doing it, it, my endurance and, you know, my mental state of mind accumulated to that point. But to be honest, I mean, I've been way more tired getting fourth than winning. Right. It it was cool. How that happens, huh? Is a 17 foot board bigger than most boards that you were using in the past? Well, for this type of race, an unlimited 17 four, that's standard. And it sounds really big, but once it's in the water, it's not really that big in a giant ocean. You know, it's like, sure, it feels big, but it doesn't, it doesn't even look it. Right. Yeah. Um, I hear that you are very secretive about your, um, boards that you ride and what you develop that you you get very into new technologies. Is that true? When it comes to competition, for sure. I mean, for, I, I, I never used to be as secretive, I guess, about all my stuff, but then, you know, you talk to someone who's like, tries to either really nice to you and then they just straight up copy you. Right. And then they tell everyone that they invented it. It's happened like a million times. Not that I've necessarily invented anything crazy, but like just the concepts. I've sp- I spent a lot of time developing my equipment and working with people that could help me realize uh, an idea. And so um, just so I have, you know, I put all that work in and I don't want somebody just straight up coming up and like, if I'm racing, you know, if I don't want them just copying what I've worked so hard for so they have the same advantage. You know, the whole, it's like, you know, race car drivers you don't know what's under their hood necessarily you try to keep that secretive and it's nothing against the next guy but man you know if you, you want to have that advantage and if yeah. everyone is so close it's really important to have any advantage that you can oh and they'll do anything to try to figure out what you're riding right and i and nobody sees what i usually ride until the morning of the race and even after the race i keep it under wraps because i'm developing off of that and um you know if they want to keep up, they got to do it themselves. And I'm sure they're the same way with me if they, they come up a cool concept. Right. Um, but I'm pretty confident in the team I work with and in my ideas that I feel like I'm always on the cutting edge when it comes to any sort of race craft for up or, um, you know, even, uh, even like, um, hydrofoils and yeah. things. It's different when it comes to surfing because it really like you could have a better board, but it's, it's not as, it's not as, 
big of a difference as like when you're doing a physical race. Yeah. You know, like you can, someone can look at your gun all day long and they could probably never, you know, get the exact one unless they went to your shaper or whatever. And there are a lot more factors on a big wave day as opposed to a race day. Yeah. You're kind of like, it's for sure. Like a lot of those waves you can catch on a nine foot board or an 11 foot board. It's just about being in the right spot. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, have you always been, uh, techie around that? Yeah. I've always been really analytical and like a perfectionist. So even if my board, the tail is like, let's say there's one inch off, you know, of the bottom contour design and I want to pull it back or I need that edge forward like that. I really notice that. Right. And when I get a board, I can tell immediately if something's off just by kind of analyzing it. And it's only because I figure if I have the best equipment in the world, that'll allow me to do the best surfing I can, you know, the best riding. Um, And that's just, I guess, who I am, you know, I guess I love the technical side of things too. Because there's always that goal to try to surf better and do better than your last session, for me at least. And, um, you know, I think on top of training and like having the vision and the ability to improve is one aspect, but really equipment plays a huge part, you know? Uh, Where do you think that came from? Uh, I think it's just kind of been inherent in like my development as a kid growing up on Maui because surfing you know you can have a couple when you're a kid you have like one or two boards you know you don't really have step offs you have your just standard shortboard and maybe a long board yeah. at least when i was growing up and i was windsurfing a lot and windsurfing is really technical because you have different size masts that hold the sail up right you have different sails for different wind conditions um sure you might have one board but in windsurfing you really really notice when your sails tuned wrong like if there's not enough downhaul which what that does is actually loosen the top of your sail and makes it feel lighter in your hands. Um, if the um, outhaul, which is where, you know, the boom, the, the bar that we hold windsurfing, if that's a little loose, it's flappy, you know? So I think from doing years and years of that, I really started to notice like how much little things make a big difference. Right. I mean, the equivalent of doing a 60 foot jump and being in control windsurfing could hinge on if the back of your sail is a little too loose or not. You know, like if it's, if it's, everything's tight and everything's good, you know, for those wind conditions, you may have way more control or you may not, or may, maybe you're like killing the sail because it's like not open up enough. So every session's different. And I think that has to do with it, especially also with kite surfing. You have like just so much more gear to deal with. It's not just like a surfboard where make sure you have a good wax job and a board you kind of like, and you're good, you know, even fins, they sure, sure. They make a big difference, but in the big scheme of things, like maybe not as big of a difference as a kite size or a windsurf sail size. Okay. So what kind of, uh, what's the difference in, uh, if you're kite surfing out at uh, jaws, what's, what factors are you thinking about? And will you be using a different kite there than you would be at a different spot? Well, jaws is interesting in the sense for wind sports, because whether it's super windy or pretty light, you kind of use one size piece of equipment every time there. Because, sure, you need enough sail to get into the wave, but what happens is it gets so windy on the wave that it, it, it's like you need the right size for the to be able to ride the wave because the, the wave's moving so fast and the wind's getting sucked up it. It's like it could be 15-mile-an-hour winds, but on the wave it's 50 knots, you know, like 50 miles an hour. Right. Um, and so, like, on a light wind day, I might use a 7-meter kite, which is relatively small, and I have to really work the kite to get on the wave, like really work it. But once I'm on the wave, I'm perfectly 
lit because the wind is already on that wave from like i guess just the motion of me moving forward with the wave creates an apparent wind in the kite or sail so when it comes out there i kind of always use the same size gear as i would use um whether it was windy or not and that's like a total that's like the only place in the world I would ever do that. Right. Yeah, man. Growing up on Maui, you really have to diversify the sports that you get into because it's so damn windy over there. Yeah, I think the 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 geography of the island of Maui is what's created a lot of wind. Why is that? It's just we have the West Maui Mountains, which are 7,000 feet at max peak and a 10,000 foot mountain volcano, shield volcano called Haleakala. And... Between those two, there's only maybe eight feet above sea level in the middle of the island. So, I mean, one day it's going to turn into two islands. We just maybe with rising sea levels. But it's it's a big enough landmass that it wouldn't be able to make it all the way that far up into the land. You know, it's like, I think, probably like 12 miles across. We're the closest to the water. But anyway, so what happens is it's a Venturi effect. And what that means is the, the land gets really hot. And the water and the air out in the ocean is a little cooler. And between those big islands, it's like if you open a door and it's not that windy outside and the difference between the pressures of inside your house and outside, it's it's sucking wind in. So it's pulling the wind between these mountains because the heat is almost drawing the wind off the ocean. So if we didn't have that on Maui, it would be not crazy windy. Um, But because we have that on no wind day everywhere else in the state, we'll have 10 miles an hour. And then you throw in the trade winds, it triples or doubles at least gotcha but it, that's not the case uh for other islands is it just because you have those high mountaintops well it's just the it's the yes it's the high mountaintops but and the shift between the two yeah so each on top of the mountain it could be i don't know 30 degrees some days that's and then, cold up there yeah i mean ten thousand feet in the atmosphere you know that's pretty high and do so you get snow on maui Occasionally, not enough to like snowboard, but right. big island, big you know, island you snow, can, yeah. it's 14,000 feet or 13 something. So the, uh, the difference between the cold air up top and then it could be in the middle of the island, 95 degrees. So there's like big change. And I, that's, that's just what causes the air to rush through the islands. There's no other island in the state that has that kind of dynamic to it. And that's why it doesn't get as windy on other islands. Right. Know? That's fascinating. And what part of Miami did you grow up on? Um, Paia. Okay. So just basically five minutes from the airport and just right there on the North shore. Gotcha. And who was the crew that you grew up in? Maui's a, a really interesting spot, especially now because there's so many damn good surfers coming out of it. Oh man. Like, I mean, it's a small place too. So it's, it's very, um, and the surf's not necessarily the best all the time. Right, you guys go surf Hokipa all the time. Yeah. That's, so that's kind of your spot. right? I mean, we have Honolulu, which is arguably one of the best waves in the world. It's not that consistent because we get blocked by Molokai a lot. You know, I could say we arguably have one of the best big waves on the planet, Jaws. Yeah. Doesn't break all the time. So we're kind of left with these novelty spots. Um, Does it get blocked on, on really north swells? Is that what happens? Or west is it swells. West swells, okay. Honolulu gets blocked. And Jaws can get blocked too, but it's literally maybe Jaws is just out of that shadow. But we can get blocked by Oahu and Kauai. Uh, but Jaws, if this swells that big, it usually gets in there and it focuses. Um but definitely like more northwesterly is our prime direction for Maui. Right. Even north swells gets really big. But uh, the, the, I guess, I think the reason why everyone's so good on Maui is because everyone just like maybe doesn't surf great waves all the time. And then when they get into really good waves, they're surfing at an incredible high level. Yeah. Um, 
But when I was growing up, of course, you know, you had so many insane surfers, um, like maybe a little older or exactly my age. Albie Lair, Matt Miola, Billy Kemper, um, Tanner Hendrickson, Dusty Payne, Granger Large. I mean, there's a laundry list of people, right? But like what I'm comparing it to now is that there's has to be five times the amount of kids that are surfing at such a high level out of Maui right now. Like, without a shadow of a doubt, there's going to be a huge push from Maui in these coming years. I mean, they're all pretty young kids still, but, like, I don't know where they're coming from, man. Right. Like, they're doing things that, I guess, you know, us older Maui generation, you know, only started doing maybe five years ago or something, and they're, like, you know seven or eight like what i mean it's just like all the aerials yeah but it's because of the the like the alveolars and the matt miolas and those guys who are innovating it all right because it's normal yeah and it takes it's harder to innovate something it takes longer to figure it out but once you get it it's easy and so a kid sees that and they can just like they they see how to do it and they can go out and practice practice practicing they get it they get it quicker that's just evolution right um but i think you know just like our generation had what they're gonna have to deal with is how to take it farther yeah you know each generation needs to take it further just like the generation before us was doing airs but then you know everyone's doing bigger airs now and um i think there's been a cool shift too there's a lot of guys that were all only like maybe core surfers and there's a, a little bit more of a community of kids who are starting to do like what I do as well, you know, um, besides just surfing, getting into windsurfing, stand up paddling, the hydrofoil is becoming very popular on Maui, um, kite surfing. So, and you know, it seems like it's become really popular for kids to dream about going out to Jaws. I mean, it's almost like if you want to be a top level pro surfer, you have to surf Jaws. Yeah. I mean, sure. You can go just to Honolulu. Honolulu is as good as it gets when Jaws is as good as it gets, but it's half the size, right? maybe even like less, but still, um, what a lot of guys do is they'll surf in the morning at Jaws and go surf Honolulu in the afternoon. That's a good combination. Yeah. Um, who is, who are the main crew that you, uh, looked up to when you were a kid? Well, when I, when I was growing up, of course, you know, you look at your peers for, as, you know, inspiration and right. on the surfing side of things, it was the Maui boys, you know, the... Like I said before, Albie, Matt, Billy. Um, are they old, are they older than you? Yeah, they're they're a few years older How old are than you? me. I'm 24. 24. I think they're like they have to be 26, like 27. 27. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I it's mean, funny when you're a kid that someone who's three years older than you is so, so much, much older. older than yeah. You, right? Yeah. You don't look up to your parents. You look up to the big brother who's three years older. Yeah. Because they have it all figured out, right? Sure. They seem so cool too. So it's like, and then I mean, there's so many great surfers from Maui, but uh. Those guys, when it came to surfing on Maui, like the immediate thought. I mean, Ian Walsh was always, I think, like a big brother to all that, their crew, you know, and to me as well. Like he was like, he was probably the first guy to grow up on Maui and witness Jaws and be the first one to go out there after like growing up watching it. Right. Whereas like, you know, Laird Hamilton, Dave Kalama, Rush Randall, Derek Dorner, all these, the strapped crew, like, which is, I would say, the equivalent of, like, for Mavericks, the Santa Cruz guys, like, you know, Barney Flea, Pete Mel, Skin Dog, you know, those guys. I think that's the same equivalent we had. Right. It's funny because, like, the comparisons between the Maui crew 
um, to Jaws and the Santa Cruz crew to Mavericks is very, very similar, but we're just in different places with different water temps. Right. We were just talking about how like people in large groups both give us anxiety because we come from small towns. Like, holy shit, there's no parking in Newport Beach. Oh, it's <laughs> how does this happen? Anxiety. Right. Different things give uh, give different people anxiety depending on their upbringing situation. That's for sure. But for sure, I don't think anybody would be surfing Jaws the way we're surfing it now if it wasn't for the first crew to go out to Piahi. Because the difference between Piahi, Jaws, um, compared to other big waves is just at the rate that wave moves, the speed of it, and how hollow it is. Because sure, you know, there's waves that maybe move just as fast, but when that wave pitches over and barrels... It's not just the initial barrel it throws. It just drives down the line. And that's why nobody thought you could paddle it when it was big because nobody nobody had experienced it on that level. Boards right. weren't developed. I mean, my Jaws board, I think, is totally different than anybody else's board in any other big wave spots just because it's had to been, like, tuned towards this one particular spot. What's it like? I mean, what we're using now is, like, before it was, like, bigger boards to catch wave. Now... We're using a lot smaller boards. Like the biggest board I use out there is a 9.4. And, you know, Albie's using all the way down to an 8.4. But we have low entry rockers. We're dabbling with epoxy because it is just faster at high speeds. That's some technology from the windsurfing community, which ironically enough, a lot of the best big wave guns from coming out of Maui, they're all from former windsurf shapers or still windsurf shapers, but they understand the speed that requires and then right. like developing quad placements on the board. You know, I think Maui was definitely responsible for moving those quad fins way forward on the boards for, and having a little more tail. What does that do? Well, what that does is just a deeper connection with the wave and for speed, you know, having that um, little bit of extra tail on the back creates stability. And because you're so choppy on Maui, you end up skipping a lot. So you need your fins to engage into fresh water versus if it's too far on the tail, it might get a little aerated and you could spin out into an oblivion. But um, it's uh, it's just interesting how things have progressed there. Right. And what like, do you, sorry, what do you lose when you have the uh, fins further back? I think what you lose when the fins are further back is the board gets stiffer. Right. And what happens at Jaws, you can't just drop in, go straight, and expect to make it. Yeah. How old were, we, were you when you first started surfing out there? I started surfing there. Well, actually, the fir- my first session ever was with Laird and Dave. It was 15 foot. Nobody was around. Just us. And uh, it used to be like that when I was, you know, that age. You know, there wouldn't, on the smaller days... There wouldn't be anybody. I mean, there wouldn't be anybody until it was 25 foot Hawaiian. Wow. And uh, so I just remember, um, you know, going out and hydrofoiling it with them for my first time. You know, I was, yeah, 16 and um, I used their board and my first experience ever riding wave out there was on a hydrofoil surfboard, you know, with snowboard bindings. The kind, if you fell, you'd rip your legs out. I never fell, but I did take off on a closeout sort of and had to ride the whitewater out and it was pretty awfully terrifying. Yeah. But I was with the best guys in the world, you know, at the time out there. So it was, there was a comfort level. You're working a lot on uh, hydrofoils right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been working on hydrofoils for the past, like, I mean, I've been doing it since I was nine years old, Yeah, but I would say until the last two years, it was never really developed far further than it was, um, for the surfing aspect or the stand up paddling. It was kind of just, People assumed that the way it was was as good as it was going to get. What was the big race that you just did? I saw something on your Instagram. Yeah, I did a, I did a, a, a massive statewide beach cleanup of Hawaii, and we were calling it the Downwind Voyage for Change. And 
to bring awareness to microplastics in the ocean since that has such a big effect on Hawaii and about 99% of it doesn't come from Hawaii. It comes from, you know, Asia or the California. Mainland. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it all blows, it goes into the big Pacific gyre, um, and just ends up on our beaches in Hawaii. So I wanted to bring attention to that, but I thought, how could I do it without looking like I'm just whining about it, you know, right. like trying to make it really personal where, you know, it, it's just my playground and how can you inspire people to do something is a lot easier than just telling people what to do. Oh yeah. Um, so the way I did it, it was to get some traction on it. I rode my hydrofoil between all the islands, except between Oahu and Kauai. We actually did it on a monohull sailboat and I was with the scientists from five gyres foundation, as well as the, um, sustainable coastlines Hawaii. And so they were teaching about ocean plastics and what we can do to stop it, you know, all that thing. Yeah, Five Gyres does great work. Uh, Captain Paul Watson and uh, I forget the name of the other two people, but I had a vice correspondent on my show, this guy named Thomas Morton, who went out to the Pacific Gyre and measured plastic um, contents out there. So for people who don't know what the Gyre is, there's this big misconception that it's an that there's an island of yeah, trash in the middle island. in the middle of the ocean, right? Yeah. Which has done a huge disservice to the plastic pollution movement because people then go out there on Google Maps and they're like there's no fucking island. What are you talking about? But it's a plastic soup. It's all of these currents that are converging and swirling. And it's a lot worse than an island because it it breaks the plastic down into these small beads that are very difficult to clean up. So what I kind of discovered from that was when we went on the sailboat, we put out a trawl, it's called. And it's basically like looks like a manta ray and it skims the surface of the water. And it has kind of like, you know, the um, basically like those flags at the airport to like measure the wind speed for the uh, pilots coming in. You know, it's like, what do they call those things? You know, anyway, they're just like a kind of a hollowed out um, kind of sleeve flag thing. And uh, so it's it's it has it allows water to pass through it, but not microplastic. And we were in the middle of be- between, you know, Oahu and Kauai. I think it's a 90 mile channel and in between there, you know, we were picking up uh, like so much trash that when you look out in the vastness of the ocean, it looks like the most pristine blue water in the planet. And then we pull this thing up and there's so many microplastics you can't see it. And the reason why you can't see it is because typically the color of them are, you know, white and blue. And I'm like, why is that? Like, why would there not be oranges or red? And that is because a lot of the fish are eating those microplastics because they see a connection between the colors as being krill or small shrimp, you know, like big, small, smaller fish eat smaller fish, right? You know, or the bigger fish is always eating the smaller fish. And the way the food chain goes is eventually the fish we enjoy a lot, like ahi and mahi or ono, you know, all these, these uh, bigger fish will be eating the little, the little fish that are eating these microplastics. And what I learned from Five Gyres is that they're actually finding traces of plastic in, D, in the DNA of the fish, the yeah. physical DNA. And the concern could be like in the future, you'd fish, it could cause cancer. Yeah, it leeches into it. Well, I mean, right now with a lot of the, the biggest fish, there are issues around mercury poisoning because there's the bioaccumulation effect. It's the bigger fish eats the smaller fish yeah. and then it goes all the way up to the tuna, which are the big issue right now. So there could be like trillions of microplastics, you know, in the ocean, but you can't physically see it because it's so small that it blends in, you know? Um, it's I, I, I would almost equate it to like 
drop your car key. Have you ever dropped your car keys on into sand, you know, on the beach and you see it fall right where it is and you cannot find it to save your life. Right. But you know, it's there. Yep. Right. It's, it's, that's like the vastness of the ocean just conceals it a little bit. And you know, I think the only way to stop it is you're, we're not going to be able to actually go out there and clean the, the physical stuff that's out there. The only way is to stop using single use plastics and stop um, producing so much plastic, like like the single use items. Um, Asia is probably the biggest proponent or the biggest, I guess, contributor to this plastic issue. Um, and so, you know, if you could, you know, somehow stop the flow, you know, like put a cork in where it's coming out, mother nature will be able to, you know, basically take it all out. Like, like it, even though it's not biodegradable, we'll probably break it up into like my, like micro pieces that not even a fish could eat. The problem is, is we're putting more trash in the ocean than the, than, than that the ocean could like get rid of. Um, so if we just almost just took a break, that would make a huge impact. And it's, it, it's, I think people tend to think of it as being really difficult to do, but it's really actually quite easy. It's um, so easy. What do you do to not use single-use plastics? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm really trying to just, you know, use hydro flasks or, you know, different types of, like, containers that aren't single-use. Yeah. Even using a container that you can use two, three times is a huge difference than using, like, um, you know, the, like, just single-use. Yeah. The, I mean, also not using chopsticks because... That a lot of a lot of times sure can come from bamboo and such other items, but a lot of stuff it's like just trying not to unless you can get it from a sustainable resource. It's pretty difficult because what I learned from this is a lot of you know the biodegradable plastics that they think they're inventing. It's kind of a lot of a marketing sham. It's such bullshit. So which it's, is just like unfortunate because people like, want to do good and they try, but it's like they believe the hype of the man you know well, so let uh, i'm going to lay this out for people but when you see the biodegradable plastic cup right and it has the leaf on it and it says this is compostable what it means is that if you put that into a certain temperature incinerator for, for, for like a, a month for a certain amount of time then it will biodegrade but no one's going to be separating that from all of the rest of the plastic that you're throwing in the recycling can and the issue is that the non-biodegradable stuff too it can't all be recycled it, because if you look at the bottom of your cup or uh, your bag, there's a little recycling symbol and there's a number around it. And only I believe I could be getting this wrong, but I believe it's like one through three are recyclable. The, and it shows the density of the plastic. But then everything past that, you can't even recycle it. Yeah, I know. I did a story on on uh, plastic pollution uh, in Oahu once and I went out to Sand Island, which is outside of... Uh, outside of Honolulu and I checked out where all of the plastic gets exported uh, and it's like that movie Wally. We went into the plastic center and they have the machines that are condensing it down and then they'll ship a lot of it off to the mainland to go get recycled and even other countries too that have different recycling standards. Yeah, it's just so expensive to recycle and I mean it's almost easier just to use renewable stuff and what I um, notice those by using like reusable containers, the water that I'm drinking tastes so much better than out of plastic. You don't realize how bad it tastes after a while, like how yeah. much more water you can drink and how much more hydrate you can feel. And you know, I'm yeah, sure. Everything like my car still runs off fossil fuels. I'm pretty desperate actually really hoping somebody makes a really awesome truck because I have so much equipment, I need a truck that's electric. Or, you know, even the electric cars now 
aren't even that good for the environment in the long run because of the lithium batteries. You know, those things are super toxic and gnarly. So it's like, huh, you know, I guess it's just getting really innovative. And I think maybe uh, in the future when they finally figure it out, you know, like a hydrogen ran car, which is basically water, um, you know, and clean water actually comes out of it. Who knows? Maybe in the future you'll have the most bad truck in the world and the thing will be run off of water. And when you're thirsty, you just go suck on the tailpipe. I mean, I mean, that's going to be it, you know? Um, have you ever seen a documentary called Who Killed the Electric Car? Yeah, I saw that. It's a good one, huh? It's a good, there's a lot of good documentaries out there yeah. right now. Um, that's cool that you're doing altruistic work with all the success that you've had at a young age. Well, I think just to, it's just like getting people, you know, the right information. Yeah. I guess coined that coined term now is like fake news. There's a lot of that around. And I think a lot of it is meant to confuse people. And if you're getting misinformation about like, something that's so simple i i kind of feel like it's my responsibility to maybe give some clarity to it and sure you know my job in a way is to like i think inspire people to do their what they love to do maybe it is to get in the water and maybe it's to uh you know follow their dreams or what have you but at the end of the day too i'm kind of like you know i'm marketing all the brands that i'm that i'm sponsored by and i'm also uh for entertainment purposes to a certain extent. I mean, we saw it the XXL words to, to, to the rest of the world that is a form of entertainment. And that's what gives us our job. But I don't want to be overstepping that and being like, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that. I know what I'm talking about. But the things I do know about and something that I feel confident in talking about is like those microplastics. I've just been in the ocean for 24 years, you know, my entire life. And what I've noticed I think is, you know, maybe I might, I might know more than maybe a scientist might just because of the amount of time spent, you know, kind of like a surfer spending all the time in the world at their local break. We know? cannot let our inability to do everything undermine our determination to do something. Yeah. I mean, li a little bit is better than nothing. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think that a lot of people and a lot of athletes do get paralyzed uh, by the paradox of choice. Right? Sure. They don't know what to what uh, issue to tackle or what to do. And they constantly have people trying to get their ear to get them to sign on to a certain issue. And um, all I know is like Sandy, like doing the best thing you can do, at least what I'm trying to do is be more community based. Because what I've noticed is just this little bit of work I've done with the communities is that they uh, I have a deeper connection with the people now. And it's not even about because I'm doing something that they're not. But there's a deeper connection, and I think nowadays with, you know, everyone can FaceTime, text, and stuff, there's been a loss of face-to-face -face connection, and just these beach cleanups in the state of Hawaii, I feel like I know people better, even though I've known them, but, like, physically doing something as a collective, I think is really healthy for the community, and I wouldn't, I'm not, I used to be thinking, how am I supposed to help the world, but the way I can help the world is by helping, like, just my, where I stand in the sand, you know, like, starting there and maybe it's and then how i can help save the world would be inspiring other people to work in their community because we're sprawled out all across the globe if we just do our little part where we stand or where we are and not only is our community getting stronger and we're probably going to fight less and be have less animosity towards each other we're also going to be you know creating a more sustainable earth for the next generations and teaching the generations that community aspect i think is pretty important and i think uh one thing that you're saying that is very true is that when you are working within your community you understand your community so you're going to be able to do the best work whereas a lot of times people going halfway around the world to try and do good work they don't really understand the people or the culture and the community 
community as a result doesn't ab- adopt the new technology yeah. or the new strategies. Um, and a lot of harm has actually come from that kind of missionary ori- I, oriented strategy of well, change. Yeah. And, and I think the, I think you're absolutely right. It's so much easier to do it from home too. You know, it's like when you have your car, your house, you know, you have a place to stay, blah, blah, blah. Like just, just even going to the grocery store, you have a routine in doing that. Just to go to the grocery store for me in California is a little more of an adventure. Even though it's quite easy, it's still not like at home per se. Um, and the, the oh yeah, point, the, whole, the whole foods down here in, in Newport, it's, it's an adventure going in there. Oh, for sure. So like it's it's just the I think the idea is it's so much easier to do it within your own community in your home. And just if everyone did that and made the, a, a kind of a focus to do that um, yeah. in their own place, we could do it without a lot of effort. Because yeah. it's, you know, in numbers, it's a lot easier. Wise young man, Kyleni. What do you, uh, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? What, what's the, what's the goal, man? Um, I have a difficult vision of where I might be in five years because I've always kind of like gone so much further than, you know, my expectations have just through the adventures and I guess, um, being able to take steps quicker than I thought it was possible, you know, like to be you know nominated for two awards in xxl for example and top three male performance of the year you know that sort of thing um it to this year it kind of seemed like that came pretty easily without me doing a massive push towards it and maybe my goal in the future is to of course try to win those awards and i mean at the end of the day though it's not about winning any any award for big way surfing i just i would do it whether i was sponsored or not jaws one of the best big ways in the world's in my backyard you know commonly referred to as like mount everest in our backyard um you know if it's in your backyard you're gonna have to climb it and once you do it you're addicted so i think my goals in the future really is continue getting competitive success within all my so all my sports stand-up paddling i've won seven world titles and kite surfing i've been second in the world and to my I guess end goal could be to win a world at least one world title in every sport that'd be awesome i mean i'm competing on the big wave world tour now too so to win a world title in there would be awesome. This was my first full year on tour and uh, was able to, you know, make a couple semifinals, got really close to a few finals, and I had to learn and, you know, go through the process of being a rookie on tour. And, uh, you know, hopefully this next year I can, you know, find better right. success and get where I want to be. Because I think, you know, my goals right now, if I'm talking just big wave surfing, is performance based sure I, I would love to ride the biggest wave I've ever ridden a hundred foot wave that's but that's not my same goal as I think a lot of guys have which is that's their only goal I want to I want to just shred big waves when I paddle in on my gun I don't want to go straight I'm either going to get barreled or I'm going to be doing two giant turns to the end of the wave are you interested in surfing Nazare at all yeah I surfed I did the contest at Nazare was that the first time you were there first time I was there and I mean I think video does make it look like a big mush burger, the most violent mush burger you've ever seen. And it's a different wave. You can't compare it to a Mavs or a Cortez Bank or a, uh, a Jaws especially because Jaws is backdoor. It's a definitely, it's like a very tall mountain that has a giant avalanche behind it. And that avalanche is super gnarly. It's just a different type of wave. And what's, I was more scared actually being on the back of the jet ski than I was riding the waves or being out the back. Like. The there's no, time, there's no safety zone. Yeah. The first time I surfed it was during my heat and I got a couple good waves and you know, I unfortunately didn't make my heat, which I was a little surprised in during like reviewing footage, but 
of course, you know, if you make it black and white, you should always make it. And I clearly didn't make it black and white. So, um, you know, when I got picked up, the whitewater is so big. It's like eight foot whitewater going up the beach. I feel like if you've ever gone to the, the edge of like the beach and you see like a little wave breaking, you're like, what would it feel like to be an ant with that whitewater going up the beach? That's what it feels like. And when I got on the ski, uh, with Garrett, he was taking me out to my heat and we had our boats or on the boats. We had all our boards and we flipped the ski two times, just trying to get out to my heat. The first time was like, you know, maybe 20 yards off the sand, the whitewater. Cause the thing is it's not just perfectly corduroy whitewater coming. It's coming from every angle, refracting off of the cliff coming from down the beach. There's a lot of current water needs to escape. So it's like this cauldron of like chest deep whitewater. And, uh, what, um, what happened the first time to flip the ski? Well, we got, I got on, and, and uh, notoriously what will happen is there's a side whitewater. And I have a good story that about Damien Hobgood and Garrett um, that I saw later on in that day. But in this case, we flipped the ski over. Luckily, we got the ski right back up. And then we were going, and almost on the outside, we went over a pretty big one. And it, it, it just the waves there aren't like on a reef. It's a beach break. It's the world's biggest beach break. And, um, so we flipped there and, but we finally made it out, you know, and it was pretty gnarly. The, uh, the, the gnarliest thing though was like, I remember in the heat, it was Billy and I were like on this one particular spot in the lineup and he caught the wave before me. I caught the wave after my way was closing out quick. So I only was on the way for a very short period of time. Perhaps if I would have just dropped down and like gotten the wave on the head, I could have gotten the score to make it through the heat. But in my you know in my perspective it just looked like complete death and billy had his wave had like kind of been more of a teepee and i just remember he kicked out and he looked out at me as i was on this wave and i was kicking out of this two converging peaks that's how it happens it's not like like just a wall it's just like two converging peaks and the part of the wave i took off on i could you could call it a 20 footer but the the section that was coming towards me was a 25 footer you know it was a monster wave it was it had to have been a 50 60 foot face and i remember kicking out at the last minute and looking down and billy just sinking on his board just going like i made the wave and now i'm getting the pinnacle of the next wave on the head so that's like that's what's scary about nazare is it's not the best paddle wave in the world if anything it's the best one of the better toe waves and it's cool that they do a contest there and all but you got to have a ski driver that's on you like you know just really quick because even if you have a successful ride, doesn't mean you're not going to get destroyed right after. You'd almost rather get pounded by the wave you're on than kick out and take another one on the head. And I think he got flexed. He his leash ripped off and he got pushed up the sand. And uh, it's towards the end of the heat, I believe. But um, a quick story about Damon Hobgood, which unfortunately no one got it on footage. And I I I think I was like one of the only people to actually see it. It was right after I think. My heat, it was going into the semifinals and I had like, hadn't made it and I was, you know, getting my spare board off the sand and the beach there is so big. Like I said, if you ever feel like an ant, go there. If you want to feel like an ant, go there because everything, the scale is bigger. The cliff is huge. The sand grains are huge, right? And I'm walking down the beach to get my board and got my board organized, whatever. And then I'm halfway back up the cliff, these stairs, super sketchy stairs actually when it's big, like you could slip off. I'm surprised nobody like spectator, like broke their legs or even could have died. Like it's kind of gnarly. There's some gnarly sections to it. Anyway, I'm halfway up and I look down the beach, like one more glance to where I had walked from. And I see Damien going out for his heat. He had like an 11-2 board, you know, massive. 
people were riding different pieces of equipment, but a bigger board is kind of the go there. Cause it's like, you know, it's so open ocean. There's not one defined peak. Yeah. Even just to be able to move around out there, it seems important to have a big board. Yo. Yeah. I mean, even to catch it. So I just recall seeing him paddling or like the ski comes in, Garrett's on the ski, he gets onto the sled and then they're going through these massive white waters. It's taking him a while. And I'm kind of just watching everyone's like all their eyes are on the next the quarterfinals that's about to end right they're, they're all eyes are on that heat and and uh i just remember watching and then they somehow ended up in a situation where they were halfway out to the break and halfway in and like they were just in the middle section and there was this giant like i would say had to have been like a 12 foot or 10 foot like foamy wave that hadn't broken on the outside was about to pitch and garrett was gonna speed up and try to go over it and he realized it was getting really steep and what you do on a ski is usually slow down so you don't catch air you just kind of go up and teeter over it but behind it was a double up it was like i think it had the power of a 20 footer but it had like two 12 footers stacked on each other like like there were two waves but if you were in front of it you couldn't see the one behind it it was like really bizarre looking and so garrett couldn't see that he slows down he's on the way to the top of the wave slowly come up and there's a backwash that's an eight foot hawaiian backwash probably like a 16 foot white wall white water coming off the sand back out and you couldn't have timed it perfect all three waves converged right where they were on top and it shot garrett saw it at the last minute and dove off no and when you're on the back of a sled in Damien Hobgood's situation, you're holding on to the board and you're holding on to the sled, whatever, and you can't see nothing. Spray's hitting you in the eyes. You have no idea. Oh, it's a feeling of complete helplessness. Well, you're trusting the driver, you know? And But in that case scenario, the driver couldn't do nothing. You were just, you cornered. Cornered like a cat in a corner, right? And um, and so Damien couldn't see anything. And the ski, I've never seen a jet ski go so high in my life. It had to have been 20 feet in the air from the top of the lip so it could have been even bigger 30 feet and the the jet ski all the ways converged and shot it like a rocket from nasa into space and the thing did like a like a half twist up and damon was still holding on to the sled because he had no idea what was happening and at the pinnacle of it he let go pushed away you see his 11 foot board looked like a twig in the air he falls down like head first the ski is half twist comes down kind of sideways and starts going straight down like a like a missile from north korea and like luckily damien from what it looked like got maybe a few feet under the surface and the ski hit him square in the head i mean so gnarly and i was like on this cliff and i'm like literally a mile away from him right and no one saw it and i'm just going even if i got down there fast enough like I mean, I, I don't, I, I'd have to run a four minute mile. And even then, you know, four minutes underwater, you're knocked out. Garrett's got stuck in the current. He's probably going to end up on the beach somehow. Right. But I was like really concerned about Damien, right? Damo. And no skis saw it. Nobody saw it. It was just outside of the competitor. Everyone's facing the other way. And I'm just like, what the frick? And so no one saved him. The skis upside down for a while. All I see is Damien crawling up the sand, like, crawling up like as if his legs weren't working he was just so rattled like tired right crawling up with this 11-2 dragon behind him laying on the sand like just looks like he's done his heat didn't even start and he was done and garrett got saved because he got stuck in a current the ski ended up on the beach ski was fine luckily it's all sand flipped it over and i was talking to damien as he came up and he's like he never made his semi-final heat not because he uh 
You know, he got last in his semifinal heat because he could never make it to his semifinal heat. Like, he almost died. It was, like, that close. And it's unfortunate there wasn't video because, I mean, that should have been worst wipeout of the year this year because, my God, I mean, that that was, like I said, Holy almost scarier hell. to surf, to go on a jet ski or be in the whitewater at Nazareth than it is to ride away. My friend Kamaki Worthington is one of the uh, ski drivers out yeah. there. And he told me one time, he's like, do you know what it's like? He's like, you know that scene in the perfect storm when George Clooney is gunning it up the face of the wave and it's, it's right before they all die. Sorry, yeah. s- spoiler alert. He's like, it's like when you're going up these mountains of water and you feel like you're in the perfect storm, just gunning it up, 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 up. And it just feels like an endless mountain going up over a water. Yeah. So that's, that's a necessary for you. And the challenges it opposes are pretty insane. And I think one wave out there, you feel you you because it's so hard to catch one wave i remember like i usually catch so many waves out of jaws or even at mavericks you know have your lineup you know the ways you want you wait for them you get them out there it's like you could have all the lineups in the world but if the wave doesn't come to you're not catching it yeah and sometimes in order to catch a wave by paddling you have to be willing to take five waves on the head before that happens and because you be out there and literally the wave will break a mile outside of you like it'll just break so far outside of you and then the next wave you want to catch will break so far inside like it's just so cat and mouse and yeah to sit way out at sea to try to get that one is near impossible too so four hours later you finally get one wave and you almost claim it out of just catching the wave like i remember i caught a really good ride and it was it, it, it was similar to a jaws ride super smooth steep kind of like hollow you know really fast and I remember just being so amped at the end, not because of the ride per se, but I was just like, yes, I finally caught one. Ugh. You know, like, yes. And then, and then you're like, so motivated. You want to try to catch another one. And somehow within five minutes of getting out, I got another wave, but I, that's pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. It can go all over the place. Cause there's a submarine Canyon outside of that wave that is refracting all of the swells as they're coming in, which definitely, creates that big peak, but the peaks can form anywhere on the beach. It's more of a survival wave than a high performance wave. I would look at jaws as being the most high performance wave just for even toe and surfing. Cause you can do turns and airs and stuff. But you know, when you catch even a toe wave out there, you're just trying to survive it. Cause it's so bumpy and, so like kind of it's, it's steep but it's slopey at the same time like it's just weird thing where if you're further up the wave it's super steep but you get to the bottom and it's still like a never-ending drop because it doesn't really bottom out like a normal wave yeah it's hard to figure out where the bottom it's hard to even see where the bottom of the wave i think is. it just comes from so deep it's just kind of a tsunami yeah of water um and then the i so so even towing is so sketchy man it's like it just has to be the sketchiest big wave in the world to surf. So after you go there, going to these other breaks, you seem feel so comfortable. Like Mavericks breaks in like a ten foot area, basically that takeoff zone. You know, you know exactly where it is. Yeah, you can scream to your friend and be in complete safety, and he you or she is five in, feet over, five feet over in the most in the dangerous pit. situation of their life. Right, and Jaws is like a little bigger than that. It's maybe a hundred yards, you know. And Mavericks is what you know, like fifteen feet around, where it's like. Like that is when you walk, I think what's cool about Mavericks though, is when you watch it from the water, it doesn't actually look that big when you're on the boat. You know, you're like, everyone's like, Oh, it's big today. And you're like, huh, really? But it's cause it's so, it's kind of until you see someone on it, of course, but it's also like visually cause it's such a perfect peak. It's yeah. such a perfect wave when it comes over that it doesn't look crazy big. Right. It's also kind of a slab. So you, a lot of times you don't see the bottom of the wave sure. because it's a little below sea level. Yeah. And then you see the um, photos later and you're like, 
damn, it was right. huge. Like Ben, I mean Ben Andrews' waves he gets out there. I think every time he gets a wave similar to that one, he's just always in the spot. His, his waves are like you see waves that are just so big, and then you get you're when they're there in person, you you remember them being giant, but you don't remember them being crazy big. Um, Jaws what, is sometimes seems bigger than it photographs. What's your perfect Mavericks wave? I mean, the perfect Mavericks wave is what I got like in February of not this year, but last year. And it was, I was with, uh, you know, Grant Washburn and he was like coaching me on where to sit and things. And, you know, all the Mavericks guys are so nice. And, um, it was cool of them to welcome all the Maui boys out there. Cause I know it's, we, they know, we know what it's like because there was like 70 guys out and, um, Jaws gets like that all the time too. And I, I only paddle for a wave if I'm in the spot and I know I'm in the spot. Don't want to take off on anybody. I want to just, you know, get the waves. And this one so happened. It was like, it was uh, the set that was coming in capped on the outside and nobody got that first one. And then Albie caught one before mine and he caught it with somebody else. I can't remember. And then the next one was kind of in between. So everyone was way too far out. Albie had caught in the one like on the normal ledge. Everyone was too far out and I was somewhere in the middle, kind of more towards the first ledge. And it was so thick. It just passed everyone up. I remember Healy trying to paddle for it, but he was like on the other side of like the knuckle. And I just ended up feeling like I was surfing Mavericks for by myself for that second because they all disappeared over the ledge. The closest person was Grant to me. He was the closest person, and he um, he was telling me how to catch one of those waves. Like, you got to shoot it in the knees. Paddle in low. It's going to suck you up high quick. And I remember doing that and just trusting in one of the masters of Mavericks out there to paddle in as hard as I could low. And it was to the point where I knew that I could, if I haired out, I would be going over the falls. So I might as well stood up and just sent it because I was going to go over either way. I was that committed to this bowl. And I remember just drop paddling in. It was the smoothest face I've ever been on in a big wave in my life. Butter. And I could hear my board just, it was just like, like the zipping sound. And my board was working perfect. The fins were working good. I stood up and it was so smooth. I didn't feel like I was necessarily moving. I just, I had time to kind of move my arms like, how would I want to hold my arm position? Whereas that Jaws, it's so bumpy. You're kind of just like trying to keep your arms together. Trying you to know? manage the air drop. Trying to manage it, right? And this was so smooth. It was the steepest drop I'd ever had out there. Felt inverted. And I just remember seeing the lip land right next to me as I started bottom turning. And as I started bottom turning, the biggest spit of my life just came right next to me in a chunk of water. Like a, this day, for whatever reason, was spinning so hard, right? That offshore wind was helping it. The there was a chunk of water that was maybe the like two sizes of two watermelons and it came right by my head as it went past. And I felt like if I was a little higher, it would have like hit me and I would have fallen really hard or even gotten knocked out. It was like a bowling ball coming out of a cannon. And, uh, I remember just getting spat and disappearing in the spin and then coming out and just being like, Oh my God, that was the best, probably one of the single best paddling waves of my entire life. Wow. And up to that point, you know, I've been paddling Jaws. For, anywhere. Wow. Yeah. And so out of anywhere, that single wave probably sticks out as one of the most memorable in my entire life. And it was at, you know, a, a break that I was visiting. Um, but I, it really helped because all the Maui boys were um, in on the boat at that point. I think they were taking a break. And all I heard, I could really distinctively hear Billy yelling, go Kai. And then I could hear Albie a little bit. And then like um, one of the other Maui boys, Tyler Laurent and, just to have like that there and felt for a minute that I was surfing Mavericks by myself and the boys were like yelling me onto, you know, the biggest wave, you know, that I paddled in out there was pretty, pretty special. I mean, it's gonna be hard to beat that one because the wave itself was so perfect. 
I mean, looking back on it, I mean, my, one of my goals would be to get one of those chip shots on the, the peak now, you know? Or like one of the Ben Andrews types waves, yeah, like out the back that kind of really catch the whitewater part, like deeper, because you can get barreled out there. It's just it's a really difficult wave to get barreled on because it slabs so hard. And how do you get behind that section? You know, like Jaws gives you a minute to set up, Mavericks doesn't, and I think there is one would that would allow you, and you could probably get the best barrel of your life out there. It's just you know maybe easier trying to go left. Do Um, you ever look at the lefts? Kind of not really Um, You know I'm still pretty fresh out At Mavs I've only surfed it One legit time And one time Before the contest Once And I recall Just being Kind of Keen on Just trying to Dial in the right A little bit You know Like learn the lineup Learn the way I haven't even That day I think Mavericks Really liked me You know Knock on wood She always loves me But I felt like she was Handing me all these Gems of waves I was catching so many Big sets Like I caught I caught a Ben Andrews style wave, not quite as big, um, in, in that afternoon. Golden Light, one of the last waves. You know, there were still people out, but it was like I felt like it was one of the last big waves of the day, and it was so smooth and easy, and I was having fun. And she kept handing me these great rides, and I even fell on an airdrop where I took off, caught air, and then like couldn't stick it, and I fell. And I'm like, oh, here it goes. You know, I'm gonna pay the piper. This is like around kind of right after I caught my crazy ride, and. It, I just came up out the back and blew water. It felt like I fell in a swimming pool. And when you look at the footage, it looks like a bad wipeout. It was it, remarkable. It was like, it was like, you know what? This is your day out here. Enjoy it while you can, because yep. I'll probably slaughter you later. Right. I, I find that a lot of the worst wipeouts that I've had out there have been on insider waves, because the way the reef is set up is there's kind of two bowls where there will be an energy where the wave detonates, and then there's a second kind of finger where the energy will kind of dissipate and then it'll gain energy again. So a lot of those um, kind of smaller inside waves are the ones where guys just get absolutely destroyed on, whereas um, sometimes those out-the-back waves, you'll fall, but if you don't get sucked into that inside section, you can kind of come up out the back, even though it looks really bad. No, it looks horrible, and then you just get pop out the back, like, you know, and so, I mean... That's that was my best session at Mavericks, and I'm really looking forward to come back there. You know, I didn't get to get there this year because of other things, and you know, swells these days. It was you know, a slow year. There's so it was a slow year, and it was pretty sporadic when those swells happened. So timing didn't work, and bummed I couldn't go. But you know, just like what I tell myself about Jaws and these other big waves is they're probably gonna be there for thousands more years. So in a way, what's the rush? Show up on the good days, maybe, and you know. And put 100% into each of those sessions. Of course, it's so fun. You don't want to ever stop. I think after having a slow winter and going through a long summer, I think everyone, including myself, is going to be just frothing to, you know, get back out there. And it could be pretty crowded again. Hey, man, as long as Taco Bell doesn't go out of business, I think you're going to be in it for the long haul. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm supporting Dude, they need the to Taco sponsor Bell. you. Are they, this is like the best ad ever for Taco Bell. I know. What Come the hell? <laughs> Actually, you know what? I Funny, someone told them that I like Taco Bell, and they sent me, like, a care package, and it looked like a big... It looked like one of their fire sauces, you know, like in their little packaging, but it was in cardboard. And they sent me some shirts and hats and a couple of gift cards and stuff, which was super rad. I mean, I didn't like reach out to them or anything, but they like found out and that's super cool. I mean, just for the fun of it, I would love to do a commercial because I think I could do something so hilarious, like where, you know, there's a Taco Bell ski and the ski opens up and there's just like this, you know, like that dry ice, like come out and there's like all these burritos, <laughs> hand me a burrito, I paddle out. A huge 25-footer comes at Jaws. I whip it. In my mouth, I have the burrito in my hand. 
and you just get barreled. Actually, I've done that minus the barrel, but I've ridden waves where I've gotten it out of the front of jet skis, hat, trying to eat the burrito while in the lineup and a set comes, so I just hold it in my mouth, take off, and I've had like a moment where I'm bottom turning and looking at my burrito and chewing the burrito and having lunch on a huge wave. I'm like, this has to be a first. <laughs> This has Dude, to you, already have, you already have the commercial storyboarded out. Let's do this. It's because I've already lived it, you know? Right. I mean, we call it the Taco Bell drive through when I'm doing these channel crossings because now on the foil, the boat will actually be just still running, and I'll catch a swell, and I'll come right next to the boat, and someone will be handing me a burrito through the window, and I'll just grab it while foiling and just continue going. I'll eat my burrito, and there's no wrap or anything, so I just eat everything, and if I don't eat everything, I feed it to the shark following me, and... Uh, we're all good. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, um, super fun conversation. Thanks for stopping by. No worries. Thank you for having me. Wow, wow. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Kai. If you did, reach out to him on Instagram. It's always nice when my guests get a little bit of love from the audience. And as always, reach out to me. Give me feedback on the podcast. It actually makes the show better. Even if you're giving constructive criticism, I do listen and... Um, I, I appreciate it a ton. Give me recommendations for new guests, anything and everything. All right. I am going to leave you with a song from my man, Leo James, a.k.a. Bottom Feeder. He is the talented artist who created the intro and outro for this podcast. And this is a song called Lovers Can Be Friends. See you soon. was much too loud 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 loud, loud. They say, they say, must be more gentle try again again, again.